Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Listening to the Irish Times podcast, I'm Cathy Sheridan. Coming up on today's episode, Roshin is joined by Michelle Rue Jr. and Margot Jansa, two very famous chefs who travelled to Dublin for Ireland's Young Chef of the Year competition. They'll be telling us all about the judging experience and the worthy winner on the night, a young woman from Galway named Gráinne Mullins. But first, Bernice Harrison joins us in studio to discuss Black Friday. She doesn't like it. There's a a spoiler, and the new Netflix show about Bikram Chowdhury, he of Bikram Yoga fame, who sounds utterly disgusting. Bernice. Cathy. I bet you love Black Friday. Well, now Black Friday. I am against American imports of makey-uppy things, OK? Because I'm still, every time I hear trick-or-treat, I get feel a bit of a, eh, why aren't they saying help the Halloween party? You know, so if that frames my attitude to Black Friday, you might understand it. Black Friday makes absolutely no sense here. I understand it in America. I really do. Because this is a big weekend in America. It's a four-day weekend. It'd be like they, Stephen's Day sales here. Well, really. more bigger. Because I remember when I, I worked in, in New York for a few years and the... Thanksgiving came round and everybody was so wildly excited because it was a four-day weekend. Now, I was coming from Europe where we have, what, nine three-day weekends? So I think four-day weekend, big whoop. They were so excited. And then one month later, I fully understand why. When we got one day off for Christmas, we got Christmas Day off. So I did. So in that context, I understood the whole Thanksgiving weekend. You fly to see your family. It's a big holiday. And then, you know, this wheeze of making it a big shopping event. Fine. I get it in America. I don't get it here. I don't get it here. Well, I'm also unlikely to get it here because I'm not a big shopper. I hard. I don't shop. You know, if I have to buy something of the house, I will. My first thing is has always been to buy secondhand. Absolutely always. So I just I don't. I'm not a big shopper for clothes. I'm just not a big shopper. So I don't. I I'd say I've never knowingly participated in Black Friday. Um, and I just feel it's yet another American thing grafted on to us that we don't need. And it makes no sense. Friday's a working day for everybody here. So what? It's not a big whoop day. Hmm. So what's, I don't get it. And also, sorry, (laughs) rant alert. And also, it's entirely inconsistent with the mood of the year. This is Greta's year. This is this is the year where we now finally really, really, really understand that that old fashioned hippie reuse, reduce, recycle is what we're all supposed to be doing. And the reduce in that is to reduce buying. So 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 we spent the whole year reading loads of stuff on oh, vintage clothes and secondhand and how to reuse and oh don't don't have plastic you must have glass so we're all on board with all that and we're all on board with oh that white t-shirt you know the offset the carbon offset if you buy a new white t-shirt is you know worth three flights to Madrid or whatever you know 
we're all up to well no I made that up we're all up to speed with all this kind of thing you know we all have it in our psyche now consuming you know what we need to lay off the gas with the consuming and now Black Friday inconsistent can't stand it we're going to spend four billion between now apparently and Mm. Christmas but I don't know how much of that is spent on Black Friday so what's all the big fuss about but people are making a fuss about it I mean you know Ireland's ancient east uh, promoters are suggesting escaping the Black Friday oh, chaos yes, yeah, by spending does. the weekend in a gorgeous hotel. Yes. Now, I don't know if there are Black Friday <laughs> prices for that. Yeah. Uh, but also, on top of that, the Gardaí and the Banking and Payments Federation, a whole lot of others, uh, the, the, the uh, Competition and Consumer Protection Commission are advising people to know their rights mm. to avoid the Black Friday blues yeah. by and getting defrauded Defra- online. Totally. And I think, didn't Conor Pope here, our consumer affairs uh, expert, didn't he write a piece saying, you know what, these bargains aren't all yeah. the bargains that they seem to be. And I suppose I'm suspicious of that too. You know, I, I, I don't, it seems as if, it's for me, it's too controlled. It's too managed. This is the day you buy. Well, why? Why? Yeah, it's an incredible marketing mm. scam, actually. Yeah. And above all, the, I did see one, one, one um, tweet this morning which said, resist shop local because anybody who lives in a town or a village or even in a city knows that it's local businesses that give jobs to our children. They sponsor the football team. They fund the charities. They pay for the upkeep of the towns and cities. And I note from one tweeter that the commercial rates form 42% of Galway City Council's income. So I urge you all and I think Bernice you will join with me in this. Resist. Resist but also I think Whatever about online, and you drew the distinction there between online and bricks and mortar, I think it puts huge pressure on bricks and mortar. I just walked in, in to, to, to work here now down Grafton Street and so many shops have got 20% off, 25% off in the window, big stickers. This is the time they should be, you know, trying to make hay to pay their vast rents. Look, I'm still not over the fact that, and I know this is entirely a tangent, that Bewley's on Grafton Street, do you know what their rent is a year? What? One and a half million. Oh God! So they have to make one That's and a half lot of million cup of coffees before exactly. So anyway, but so the pressure on bricks and mortar stores. I think Black Friday really hammers that as well. So anyway, so remember anything. Greta and shop local. Yes, I mean that's simple, isn't it? Yes, yes. What now, what isn't simple is this. Bikram yoga person. Oh, yeah. Who you apparently have a deep and intimate knowledge well, of. <laughs> no, I am a podcast fiend. I listen to podcasts all the time. So, of course, I'm always thrilled to be on the women's podcast, but I listen to podcasts all the time. And about two years ago, I listened to this fantastic uh, series. Uh, it was made, I, I can't remember, it's gone off my phone. It's 30 by 30 uh, is the crowd that make it. And it's, uh, it was called Bikram Yoga. And it was about... Mr. Because there, I, that was my first inkling that there was a man called Bikram. Indeed. Who invented Bikram yoga or now there's, of course, controversy on that. But Bikram yoga is essentially hot yoga. Now, I was familiar with hot yoga, not obviously because I hadn't done it myself. My sister did it. And it seems to me that it takes place in Ireland anyway. Now, and I'm, well, did when it came in in, you know, smelly yoga studios with sort of sodden carpets because the temperature is so hot and people sweating into it and men wearing little speedos with their arses in your face as you're trying to do your downward dog or whatever it is. Anyway, so Bikram Yoga, it seems to be a series of 20-something moves, 26 moves, is it, in this really hot studio environment. And that's, that's fine. There's loads of different types of yoga. That's just one of them. That's fine. But what emerged about Bikram himself is that 
a lot of things emerged and it emerged really brilliantly in the course of this podcast, which I urge you to listen to. It's several episodes um, about how he sort of took in Amer- took America by storm, giant big celebrity fan base, created all these studios. Um, it became, cult is a word that's thrown around a lot, but it became um, kind of like a cult. People went to train to be Bikram yoga teachers and it cost 10 grand. And, be and I think that's where the rot set in. Completely. Place, isn't yeah. it? When he, he took these people away to these yes. hotels in very remote yes. locations, he booked the presidential suite and invited some of these young women, young women yes. his favourite young women, yes. up to his room to yes. massage him. Exactly. He's not welcome in America anymore. I think he's hiding out somewhere. Um, but he had vast wealth. Um, why he's back in the news now, I suppose, is because of the Netflix documentary which just landed just a couple of days ago, I think. Um, I watched that because having listened to the podcast, I really was very keen. And unfortunately, the Netflix documentary is really, really boring. It's it's extremely boring. The pictures were genuinely better on the on the podcast, you know, in your mind. Um, it well, was just interesting. That's what his lawyers say. Ah. That it's just repeddling, <laughs> just a repetition of old well, material. Actually, and he says the clients are all acting because they're all, they've all been promised a million dollars by oh, their lawyers. OK, okay. Yes. well... You know whether that is true. It's just it's just very tedious. Actually, it's it doesn't really add anything to the podcast. So I'd urge everybody now, if you're looking for a podcast for your evening walks, that's search out thirty by thirty. Mm, yeah, Vikram, Bikram yeah. Chowdhury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you'll have to form the the picture in your own head about Bikram in his little black speedo. Yes, and yeah. the emotional abuse he chucked at people. Yeah, I mean he does sound like a revolting person. You see, you'd have to. The one thing that you really did get a sense of, I, I will say this about the t- TV documentary, is how, in a sense, vulnerable, largely the women were who were taking these courses. They were really looking for something. They were looking for something other than, you know, f- body flexibility, a mm. bit of peace and quiet for an hour and a half on a, on a you know, wet Tuesday evening. And I, there are you a know. few people who claim to have been genuine. I read a piece in the LA Times about this, about this woman in particular who did do the teacher training course but who was transformed by yeah. herself. She suffered from scoliosis and a few yes. things and it transformed her life. Yeah. But she ended up being abused by him. Yeah. And I, you know, you, you just got the sense of oh, like thousands upon thousands of young women Searching for something and then thinking they found it in 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 this godlike figure because he presented himself very much like a godlike figure in black speedos, yeah. um, and that they could trust him, they could believe him, they could follow him. He had a very rigid shape that they could live their lives by. You know, I mean, you know, there is a, a sort of a nearly a religious element to these kind of things in a sense. Mm. Um, Except when they become celebrities yes, exactly. and begin to make a, a vast amount of money. Exactly, out of it. exactly. Now, Bikram Yoga still exists. People like there's loads of Bikram Yoga studios. I don't think you're supposed to call yourself a Bikram Yoga studio unless you've done the ten grand course. I think you can call yourself Hot Yoga. I think. Um, well, you put me right off the whole thing. Well, <laughs> was it the man with the, the sweatiness and the and and yes, and, 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 and the, the, the damp yeah. uh, mm. carpets and stuff? <laughs> I won't be patronising a big <laughs> establishment anytime no, soon. No, thank you, Bernice. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. 
up next, Roisin sat down with two exceptionally talented chefs to wrap up a very successful food month here at the Irish Times. French chef Michel Roux Jr. and South African-based chef Margot Yancey were in town recently to judge Ireland's Young Chef of the Year competition, which was won by Gráinne Mullins, a young pastry chef from Galway. Michel is the author of six best-selling cookbooks, has two Michelin stars to his name and, amongst other things, has appeared as a judge on BBC's MasterChef. Margot, on the other hand, is best known for her work as head chef of Le Cartier Francais in her home of South Africa and for her charity Isabello Feeding Hungry Minds. So what winning attributes do they see in Grania and how difficult is it for women to progress in the culinary arts? Margot, last night sounds like a wonderful occasion. Tell us all about it. Well, it was a true um, celebration last night and... Um, and it was a fantastic atmosphere in the room. And I think as an outsider who's not part of the Irish community, obviously, um, yeah, it felt it felt heartwarming. And um, and I think everybody was was really happy. Yeah, and it was and well organized. And uh, and the contestants were obviously quite nervous, but uh, um, yeah, it became a, a super celebration. And the young chef was won by Gronia Mullins, so a woman chef as well, which is correct. We like to see on the women's podcast. <laughs> Because I suppose what we'll be talking about is that kind of fact that some people feel that it's not a friendly place for women a lot of the time in restaurant kitchens. But you are the, you know, the proof that it can be and obviously is and lots of women around the world who are successful at what they do too. But what was, why did she win? What was, what, how did she stand out for you? I think she, um, her, her complete story was really incredible. There was real heritage in it. I mean, you know, everybody obviously has memories of food and it was a grandmother or a mother or a father um and with her um the, the story was really complete like you know she picked the seaweed with her mother and um her father made the wooden bowls and just her irish story was really i felt i i really felt a sense of aha i'm i'm now experiencing not just tasting but I, i'm experiencing ireland and, and all of that has to be authentic. You can't just kind of, that that doesn't come from someone just deciding to do that. It's in you, like it's yes, in her family. Yes, and, 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 and you could sense it in her and her enthusiasm and her love for it. Um, and then in her food, I think she was, she did something unique. Like she, and I think that is a, a big thing these days in the culinary world to actually be unique, do what you really believe in and find your own culinary uh, language, you know. Michelle, for you then, what? How did Ronnie impress you? Oh gosh, I, um, actually, watching her work as well, um, she seemed unflappable. She seemed to be really, really in the in the zone, as we say, and uh, and she, the concentration was there, but she was cooking with a smile on her face as well. And I, I always say, you know. Uh, an unhappy, grumpy chef doesn't make the best food, but but a chef that cooks with a big smile on their face is always going to make good food. Yeah, um, my daughter's learning double bass at the moment. That's what her teacher keeps telling her. <laughs> Can you smile? Because <laughs> she's got this really intense look on her face. But I think that comes with practice when you can actually laugh and be it's happy. A, it's a confidence <laughs> as well, and, and and you know if you're confident in what you're doing and, and you are you know what, what you want to achieve, then then yes, then you, then you sort of kind of loosen up a bit and everything will be much better for that. Michelle, I said there earlier to Margot that uh, kitchens, restaurant kitchens haven't uh, traditionally been friendly places for women. Can you tell me what you think about that? Because we know we'll talk about Monica Galetti as well, who's mm. been a 
big protege of yours, but also someone we've come to know and love on the TV screen. Um, but for you, is that a, a perception that you think is fair? Uh, I, I think it's absolutely and utterly ridiculous. Uh, you know, the women... Uh, there is no reason why women cannot work uh, in the kitchens, uh, in professional kitchens. Uh, head chef at Le Gavroche now is uh, Rachel, Rachel Humphrey. And she started with me as an apprentice and worked her way up to, to running the show. I and mean, she's running the show today. In fact, arguably, she runs the show even when I am there. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's true. Uh, you know, there, there, there is absolutely no reason whatsoever. And of course, Monica, you know, she she famously uh, worked with me and worked her way up as well. Uh, she had a child whilst she was working uh, for me and um, and I took the decision, uh, or I should say we took the de- decision, Monica and, uh, and myself, uh, that uh, she would take time off, have the child, and when she was ready to come back, she would come back. And uh, she and I was cool with that, I, you know, and cool with flexible working hours as well with Monica because the way I see it, I'd rather have Monica working for me, even if it was only a few hours a week, than not, uh, you know. And and so you have to be able, you, you have to offer that flexibility, which is great. Fine, uh, I can work with that. I mean, I, you know, and my daughter's a chef. You seem particularly like a, a good um, boss sort of facilitating all this, but I presume, and Margaret, you might be able to talk a bit more about it, that's not necessarily the case in a lot of kitchens where people, talking about flexible working hours, talking about going off to have children, um, that they're not seen as things that women can do and therefore they're going to get pushed out of a very male-dominated scene. Yeah, look, I think it's, um, I think it applies to men too. You know, I know we are highlighting women here, but I mean, I think the general... Um, the general kind of culture in kitchens needs to change and it is changing, um, but it's difficult. Um, And I think I was fortunate maybe, uh, or it's where I chose to be and stay because it was a great place and it was, you know, at Le Cartier Francais was owned by a woman. The general manager was a woman. Uh, I'm clearly a woman. (laughs) (laughs) And then the one, you know, I think about... It was, I think, in 2000, I kind of looked around and went, oh, golly, we're only women in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And that was great. And then we, it wasn't, it wasn't a forced thing, but then we started obviously using that and saying, oh, we just, you know, yeah. we just women. <laughs> um, and then I thought, so how do I put a man back in here? <laughs> and I got this great CV and I thought, yeah, you're the wrong sex. Sorry. Um <laughs> And this guy kept phoning and um, and eventually I said, okay, and I was really desperate for a good sous chef. And um, I said to him, okay, let's meet. So I need to tell you something, like there's only women in my kitchen. And he's like, oh, I don't mind. I grew up in a house full of women. Um, and so he joined the team. And then I had to break it to all the women around me, like there's a man coming. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit the other way around, I suppose. But I think I was fortunate in that, um, for 22 years, I was part of a of a strong female power team, and it worked for me. Um, but since I've left, I think I'm. But I, you know, I, I was asked a lot of times, "So, what is it like to be a female chef?" I was like, "Well, I don't have <laughs> comparison material because I've never been a male chef, so I don't know. Like, this is what it's like for me, and I know I have to fight for things. Do I have to fight harder? And now I realize, yes, I, I do think." Now that I'm not in that environment and I'm kind of, you know, a one-woman show, yeah, I'm more aware of 
of uh, how tough it is actually as a woman out there. You had that ex- amazing experience for 22 years of, of a female kitchen. Do you, do you think there's a different energy? Because people talk about this too. And, you know, we're used to the kind of chefs shouting. I don't think, Michelle, you're you're not necessarily a shouty one, are you? Talk to you about that in a second. Uh, <laughs> ah, don't shout at me. <laughs> well, you know, but we're used to this thing of, you know, that's what, how you make a good kitchen. But um, And I'm not making any assumptions here, but in that female-centric uh, kitchen was there a gentler energy was there was there shouting or was there from your experience of both what what do you think it was like well in my kitchen i mean you're still running a kitchen and uh um i know i'm very caring so if if you know the loyal people around me i really care um but at the same time there's a job to be done so there are there are very kind of serious rules in place one is trust <laughs> and being responsible um and so so if the, if you don't adhere to those then it falls apart so you still have to be the boss you still have to be the leader um but you don't have to be a, a terrible person you don't have to break people down and I, yeah i have a quite a sarcastic side so i kind of use that but um but we can afterwards sit together and say yo okay let's just talk about that because that was not pleasant Michelle, what about you? Um, you you have your days. You said I think uh, where you're. A I think sh- we all have our yeah. days. Don't we? I certainly do. I'm just thinking <laughs> of my poor kids. They'd, they'd say of my days. Um, but there is this kind of idea that to be a really important good kitchen, there has to be that very um, tough energy, and people have to be feeling almost cowed in, at their stations. No. No, no, def- definitely not cowed. But, but um, you know, as Margot said, yeah, there are very strict rules and, uh, uh, you know, pe- people are, uh, customers are coming in, they're expecting, you know, the, the wonderful experience and you've got to be able to deliver that on time. And it's a team that works together. As, and if, if one of those, you know, little elements messes up, then the whole team can be, you know, brought down. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's stressful, it's high energy and uh, especially in the middle of service, um, you know, if... if you need something, you're not going to turn around and say, excuse me, would you mind passing me that, please? Thank you very much. No, it's, uh, it's give me that pan, please. No, you don't even say please. It's just give me the pan. Yeah. But if, if, if somebody messes up, and uh, you know, then, yeah, there might be the odd expletive. But the most important thing is at the end of service to actually go and explain what went wrong and how not to do, how you know you can remedy that for the next time. Um, so, the, 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 I suppose in any walk of life, you you know you can make mistakes, but it's how you remedy the mistakes yeah. and how you learn from that mistake, uh, which makes you stronger. I was reading a statistic. I think it was from last year that less than seven percent of kitchens in America, I don't know what it's like in England, um, are led by women, and that's like. I mean, in lots of industries, there's mm. a domination of men as well. Would you like to see that change? And how do you think it can change? Yeah, of course I would like to see it change. And uh, and I think it, 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 it has changed already. I mean, there are many high-profile female chefs now um, in, in the UK. And, uh, and the more, the better. And um, I, I think we have to champion that and we have to all uh, embrace that. And what sort of an experience does your daughter have? You said she's a chef as well. Has she come across discrimination or feeling like, you know, being put down because she's a woman in that industry? Um, not in the UK, um, but um, she did train in France and uh, there, there were the odd occasions in France where uh, uh, she did feel that way. Um, but, um, uh, gosh, you know, th- 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 there are still a few dinosaurs out there. A few. <laughs> Maybe there's a few more in France as well. 
<laughs> Margot, tell us about the dinosaurs that you've oh, encountered. <laughs> there's, there's not just a few out there, Michelle. <laughs> it's quite he's, a, he's been quite optimistic. Um, well, I think it's the dinosaurs that need to change their, their perception. And I think it's... Um, I think there's a strong female movement, you know, in in chefs and in the industry uh, stepping forward, uh, you know, with the 50 best going, you know, 50-50. But the real difference will come when men start demanding it and saying, actually, why are we only men here? Where where are the females? When men start saying, this is not okay, you know, instead of us always shouting, hey, this is not okay, you, um, we need the men to come on board here and say, whoa, you know, this needs to change. And, and do you see them doing that? Um, I mean, Michelle is obviously an advocate and has, you yes. know, brought people up through the kitchen and doesn't see sort of a bit gender blind. If someone's good, they're good and, and that's it. But that's not the case necessarily. But, yeah, because there's I, a bit of a like, if it's a male bastion, so maybe some people want to feel like, actually, let's keep it to ourselves. I mean, yeah, maybe it's not done in a, with any bad intention. It's just a habit and and that habit needs to change. And I think it needs to change um, in public, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying all kitchens are bad and all men are bad. Not at all. Mm. But but we need some vocal male chefs to stand up and say, hey, you know. Yeah, because you'll often see these panel conversations about cooking or restaurants and there's lots and lots of men. And yes. if there was one of them would say, actually, I'm not going to go on that panel because you clearly don't, yeah. you're not representing. Yeah, why isn't there more equality? Yeah. And yeah. what about Michelin as well? I mean, it is the case as well that most of the starred restaurants are have male chefs too. Do you think there's a problem in that, in there? There's probably a few problems in Michelin, not just that. One. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> we could be here all day. Uh, that's know, another uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we don't have Michelin stars in South Africa. So that's quite, I mean, I know people would really like it and I think actually it's great. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, I think it's across the board. Is it Michelin? Is it like I think it's it's a it's a culture that needs to change, and it's not going to change overnight. But we need to keep talking about it, and we need to be um, vocal about it. And sometimes you need to be kind of revolutionist about it. You know, uh, we're all about revolution on the women's podcast. <laughs> uh, it's it is an interesting thing though that if you think about the amount of cooking done all over the world in homes all over the place it's mostly the women doing it and then when it becomes something you know out for for commercial purposes or for getting acclaimed then it, it I, I always find that kind of interesting because there's so many yeah. incredible uh home cooks people at home making amazing meals with very little and being very resourceful creative and all those things they mightn't look like a, a Michelin star plate but you know having grown up in a big family myself seeing what my mum could do with going and buying bits of oxtail and bits of really cheap cuts of meat and making these incredible dishes yeah. you know there's yeah. there's obviously clearly talent there that's not being exploited yeah i don't know what do you think michelle is there is do women have different egos from men i don't think you can generalize like that um but i think the real change will come this is a bit of a thing for me <laughs> when there is a best male chef award why is there only a best female chef award? Why yeah. isn't there a best male chef award? M- Michelle, yeah, what do you think? I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I, when, when, I see, when I see best female chef uh, awards, I think, okay, great, but why are they being judged separately? You know, it should be on merit. There's, you know, it's on merit. It, it's, I think it's almost counterproductive. Uh, and, you know, it should be just... Best chef, end of, whether you're male or female or whatever, you know, you just get, get judged 
on what you are doing uh, and not on your gender. I suppose it's like the best young chef. It was just about the age. It wasn't about whether yes, they were yes. male or female. Yeah, so if there's a best female, there should be a best male, right? If yeah, it's yeah. about six, then it's, that's, that should be equal too. <laughs> um, and I understand that it's a platform that if you win best female chef, that you say, yeah, but, uh, you know, I'm actually going to use this platform to show women that it's possible. But I think we all know it's possible. You've been in the business a long time. Are you much more hopeful now that things will change? Or do you, do you feel like it's still going to take a long time? No, I think there's there's definite movement in it, and there's real awareness happening, um, and and things like this talk. You know, I think it's important. We have to talk. Mm. We've got to talk about it. Um, in South Africa, women work, like I think probably more than men. You know, especially in the in the poorer communities. So, so I also like there's a lot of female chefs, um, and kitchens are filled with females. Um, and I think as a female kind of unit, that's that's very strong. Um, but we've got to talk outside outside our kitchens, you know. Mm. And I also wanted to talk to you about your charity work because you do amazing work with young people, don't you? Making sure kids get fed. Tell us a little bit about your charity. <laughs> kids get Only fed a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we started uh, we started feeding kids in the township ten years ago, um, and we started we made a very nutritious muffin. Um, and uh, and started um, so we could actually offer this with guests, that guests had a kind of a vehicle to, to give back with us. And it grew really quickly. We got a lot of financial support from guests, from, you know, it's all private donations. Um, and so within six months, we were actually feeding 70 kids every day a nutritious meal. Um, and now uh, I'm, I took the charity with me when I left Le Cartier Francais. It's called Isabelo, Feeding Hungry Minds. And I feed 1,500 children uh, in the township every school day. So I feed different schools. Um, and I think it's a, it's because it needs to be done. Kids go to school hungry and you can't learn on an empty stomach. And I, none of us, I think, really know what hunger is. Um, if you haven't had dinner the night before mm. or it wasn't your turn to get dinner because there was so little. Um, and you come to school and you just, I mean, there's a big hole. So the kids know if they at school, so there's two primary schools where they get breakfast and there's, there's um, two preschools that get breakfast and a nutritious lunch. Um, and they know if you're at school at eight, you get breakfast. Um, so it's oats and there's a boiled egg, um, there's milk fruit. And the, the lunch for the little ones consists of, of a protein-based uh, warm meal. It's an incredible achievement, Marco. Isn't it amazing just even listening to that and to know you've you've created that is so satisfying. Yeah, yeah, it is. But it's also for me, it's not a it's not a Mother Teresa kind of thing, you know. It's really because it needs to be done. And yeah. and so I, I I feel whatever it is, I think the 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 kind of high level gastronomy is extremely uh, privileged. <laughs> um, you know, we we I saw some wastage like food that goes in a bin. Where people don't think about it, never mind the money. Like I'm just thinking, oh, I mean, people can eat that. Why? Why are we throwing it away? And um, um, if, but even beyond that, we have a responsibility as chefs as to be educators too. We have an incredible platform at our fingertips where we can educate customers, uh, and customers need to start asking more questions. They need to mm. know. What, they need to demand where does my egg come from? Like 
Yeah, actually on that, Michelle, what about um, the climate crisis and sustainability and all those things? There's a lot of talk about meat at the moment. Mm. I mean, it's incredible the amount of vegan restaurants that are opening up and the way it's sort of, it's encroaching on our our mindset that eventually it's not going to be sustainable to eat meat. Are you feeling like that's a, a way of life that's kind of dying in a way? No, no, not really. Uh, I mean, the the, uh, the vegan movement is is certainly uh, vociferous, and they're, they're they're sort of growing for sure. Vegetarianism as well, um, but I I myself don't eat that much animal protein. I, I pick and choose, and I'm, I'm very very picky, and I, I would far rather uh, forego uh, badly sourced or badly reared animal protein, um, and uh, and just. I have it once a week, say, you know, a, a good steak once a week or a good roast chicken once a week. But I know where that chicken's been. I know where the, the animals come from um, and it's been reared properly. Um, and, 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 you know, I think that's probably better than becoming a vegan. I mean, you know, I'll probably get hate mail now from vegans. <laughs> saying that. But, yeah, you know, and, and if you take, take, take the UK, uh, the Lake District, for example, the Fells and all that, all that area, you can't grow plant, you can't, um, grow crops there uh, but it's beautiful and lush and the pastures are great so you've got perfect perfect area for growing sheep uh, for uh, rearing sheep or cattle um, and the, the grass is lush and it's nutritious uh, and there are farmers there small holdings that, that, that are, are doing a fantastic job and looking after their animals and uh, and and that that is you know I think that's important and we should not we, we should not stop that. And uh, I'm sure it's the same in Ireland as well. You know, it rains nearly every day here. The green, the, the grass is really green and nutritious. So, you know, you have got fantastic cattle. You've got fantastic dairy products as well. So, you know, I, I think it's a balanced diet and, uh, and it's choosing, being, being a little bit more choosy uh, of what you eat. Um, what do you cook at home, Michelle, that you absolutely love that people might be surprised by? <laughs> I, uh, oh, very, very simple food. Very, I mean, a roast chicken, for example, is a treat, a real treat. I mean, the, the chickens yesterday were really good, weren't they? They were chickens that, were, that, that had a proper life. They'd been running around and, uh, you know, and, and scratching, the, scratching the earth and eating worms and stuff like that. So, you know, yeah. So a good roast chicken for me is, is a treat. Have you any tips for people who want to make the perfect roast chicken? Get it out of the fridge early like you know it's so, room temperature before you roast it and uh, and rub the skin down with uh, with a little bit of oil and salt that makes a big difference to me yeah maybe put a bit of butter under the skin as well okay margo yeah. what's your thing at home that you love to eat well, i was thinking roast chicken yes. okay well it's kind <laughs> can't of say I, roast chicken you know if i if i um invite people around um uh it's yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, let's come for dinner. Yeah, I'll do roast chicken. But you know, in South Africa, we like to braai, which oh, yes. is barbecue. Braai, yes, okay. we cook on fire, and um, so we actually have a big fire pit in our in our garden, and um, it's springtime now, so we just love it. And the nights get a little bit longer, and then we say, okay, let's make a fire. And then it's actually whatever I can find in the fridge, you can cook anything on fire. So sometimes it's vegetables. Um, or some asparagus, uh, and sometimes we have a, a bit of chicken, or I um, have some mussels, or you know, uh, we do whatever, whatever. And it's really, um, 
it's about the the environment, I think, and the experience and where we sit and actually just enjoy being together around the fire and cooking. And then we don't even use plates, you know, we kind of just eat it. <laughs> <laughs> no washing up. eat it off the fire. And no washing up, yeah. which we like. Yeah. Um, let's get a little bit indulgent before you go, though. The death row meal situation, if it was the last thing you were going to eat, <laughs> and I'm sure you've been asked this before, but tell me anyway, what is that? What is the last taste and morsel you would like Well, you know, you depart I'm, this world? I'm Dutch at heart, so <laughs> it's cheese and good bread, yeah, and I'll be happy. If, you know, at any time of the day or night, if I think, oh, I really need something to eat, that's really the first thing that comes to mind. Like, oh, good bread, good cheese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Michelle, what about you? Yeah, I'm with Margot on that. I'm a bit of a cheeseaholic. Uh, I love cheese. Um, but but no, my, my sort of death row would be um, a grilled lobster, but you would have to cook it for me, Margot, on, on, on your braai. Uh, so grilled lobster, uh, garlic butter all over it. Lots and lots of garlic butter. Because if I stink, who cares? I'm going. Um, and uh, and serve it with some, some lovely chips, but they've got to be cooked in duck fat or goose fat. And big fat ones, you know, fat chips, not the stringy oh. little thin ones. No, fat chips, uh, sprinkled with lots of sea salt, uh, and a, a big sauce boat of sauce bernaise, a nice rich oh, bernaise. Talking sauce. my language here. I'm just making me hungry. Just yeah, <laughs> and, and of course a glass of vintage champagne to go with it. Oh, there you go. You lovely. coming? Yeah, I, I am. I definitely <laughs> am. I've, I've been to Le Gavroche once in my life and I'm going there again sometime. We actually stayed above it when I went oh, yeah. and we had a lovely, lovely time. It was fantastic. Yeah. I think life's too short to talk about death row. So why don't we just all come to South Africa and I'll do Yay! it for you. Okay, it's happening. I'm really glad you both came in. This is wonderful. Um, and the problem is, you think I won't hold you to it, but I will. I'll be ringing you up. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> you said um, it was lovely talking to you I think there's loads of hope and lots of optimism about women in uh, in your industry and things are changing uh, so maybe a final note of hope from you Margot on that um, yeah I think we, we I think we mustn't underestimate the power that we have you know and, uh, and, and talk like really like we've got to talk about it we've got to be loud about it and uh, and the men must come on board you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, Michelle is on board thank yes, you both very much it's food month in the Irish Times so this is a wonderful way to celebrate it as well so Excellent. thank you both thank, thank you. you and that's it for today thanks to our guests Bernice Harrison Michelle Rue Jr and Margot Yance remember you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts we are on Spotify Acast and all good podcast apps if you want to get in touch we are on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com the Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.